Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Michael Mann's Ferrari. Joining us, I guess it, you guys want to be called Rewind's resident gearheads? I don't know. Uh, it's it's Elijah Howard and Fred Cobb. Elijah, how's it going? I am, I am revved up. I'm at the starting line. I'm ready to tear off on this one. All right, Fred, I know I know you're a huge car guy, right? You said you're a Fast and Furious correspondent. Are you ready to, you know, zoom through this one? Absolutely. Uh, ready to hit the road running. Yeah. So Ferrari is uh, Michael, acclaimed uh, director Michael Mann's uh, first feature film in eight years since 2015 Black Hat, which is a movie I'm going to admit to have never seen, guys. I know. I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like people like people like uh, talking about that movie ironically as like, you know, something that's got a lot of a great movie or just like a lot of fun. I just, it just never one that like made it to me, even though I, there are a lot of Michael Mann movies that I really like. Uh, but like Ferrari is one that he had apparently been trying to get made for like quite some time since basically like 2000, you know, and the guy that wrote the script, Troy Kennedy Martin, died in 2009. I, did, I, did, I learned that today. So it's been, it's, been, it's been like a long time in the making and he's uh, been a lot of different people attached to it at different points, including uh, Hugh Jackman and um, uh, uh, Christian Bale, who, of course, was in Ford versus Ferrari, a movie which uh, Elijah and uh, Fred talked about with me in 2019. Uh, but so, you know, it, it just ended up becoming Adam Driver's thing uh, when uh, they connected a, uh, at some point in the last couple of years. And uh, it also so it starts Adam Driver as the titular Enzo Ferrari, who, you know, started the famed car company more as like a racing uh, company that then, you know, obviously, you know, a racing team that then turned into uh, something much bigger than that with his company. But this movie focuses on a period of time in like 1957, I think it is, guys, where uh, he is you know, trying to like save his company, which is in some dire financial straits. Uh, his wife, uh, uh, Laura Ferrari, played by Penelope Cruz, has uh, a, had a big part in running the business, has a big financial stake in it. And they but they also need to win this race uh, called the, uh, either of you guys had to pronounce this, is it the Millimiglia? Millimiglia. Millimiglia, which is like a big race on like a, you know, it's like a, what is it like a several hundred, like a almost a hundred mile track a thousand, path? Thousand, excuse me. Oh yeah, yeah, excuse me. Almost a thousand mile, uh, you know, uh, course. Um, and he has a whole team of racers, and if he can win this, that'll you know help save his company. But all the while, he is you know dealing with a bunch of domestic strife. As you know, he and his wife uh, they lost their firstborn son to I think muscular dystrophy. Maybe was it? That's and. Right. And when he was like only 24 years old, but he also had a he, about 10, 10, 12 years before the events of this movie towards the end of World War II, he had an affair with another woman uh, named Lena Lardy and they had and con conceived a son who uh, Laura doesn't really know about as we pick this up. And he, he's under pressure, though, to recognize this son as his own with his last name. Piero is, is the son's name. And so he's trying to balance these business concerns with these personal concerns for much of the movie. Uh Elijah, you were the first of us to see this movie and your response, you, you, the message that I, I saw you send about this movie in one of our group chats was Ferrari, weird movie, which is a way I've, I don't know if I've ever quite heard you like respond to a movie after. And, you know, I think on the surface, like Ford versus Ferrari, I think we would all agree, like, you know, awesome, fun time, fun dad movie, if nothing else. And I guess I kind of went into Ferrari expecting something like that. And then I see you say weird movie and I'm not going to disagree, but I'm wondering what, what about this elicited that response from you? And did, were you, did you still enjoy your overall experience? I am. So I'm a, I'm, I am a, I'm a manly man. I love Michael Mann. Um, I think, you know, Heat is one of the best 
action thrillers ever made. I think the screenplay and the direction for The Insider is some of the best of the last 30 years. Um, at the Colla- same Collateral time, rules. Colla- yeah. Collateral, amazing film. Uh, you know, I, I can... Public enemies, eh. <laughs> well, my, it's a movie. So I can I can understand the the feeling that Michael Mann has fallen off though. Um I don't fully agree. I'm I defend Black Hat. I certainly defend Miami Vice and to some degree I even defend Public Enemies. Um, it is it's an it's a it is an ugly film and has a lot of problems, but it's it's um experimental in a way and I have to kind of give it some respect for that. So but 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 I can I can fully agree with kind of the notion that it's like, okay, he hasn't, you know, Michael Mann hasn't made a film in eight years. So what, what do we go into this movie expecting? It's, it's territory that would appear to be very comfortable for man, right. Working within a historical context, uh, you know, that's, which is how he succeeded with Ollie and the insider, you know, working with a, st- a story that is ostensibly about, you know, toxic masculinity and things like that, which is all ground that, uh, you know, that Michael Mann has consistently kind of played around with and worked with. So, so really my, my feeling going into this movie was like, does, you know, it's basically just, does he still have it? Like, what is, what, what can we see about Michael Mann who is now 80, you know, who hasn't made a film in eight years? We've, pretty much thought he was going to be done after Black Hat, right? To see sort of what he wanted to, uh, you know, to to go with, where he wanted to go with this film. And now we did have, and I think all three of us, if if I want to remember correctly, we all know there was a little bit of a, a cheat as far as we we knew that he was, that he still had some juice, right? Because I think all of us watched Tokyo Vice. I did not. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I, kn- I knew, I was like, I'm pretty sure at least, one other person on this call. It seems uh, like a thing Fred did. Yes, right, Fred. Yes, yes. Fred watched yes. Tokyo Vice, which which man did shoot the pilot for, um, and I believe worked as a uh, executive producer on the whole series. So, uh, and Tokyo Vice was phenomenal. So I was, I was, I, I I kind of had some inkling that there would still be some some gas in the tank, as it were. Um, but <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um. But but everything else about this movie was just so strange from the outset, right? Um, as you already mentioned, Troy Kennedy Martin, the screenwriter, has been uh, deceased for over a decade, um, and 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 yet I was still curious here because I think this this happens like every now and again. You'll get somebody who dies before their screenplay is produced. And then their screenplay is produced, and maybe it's good, maybe it's not. But it generally is kind of just sort of an oddity. We've we've, Troy, we've we've done a podcast on one of those before with Mank. With Mank, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, but it's like Mank's like the, the the screenplay for Mank was like a specific passion project for uh you know for Fincher's dad, right? Like it it's and got, not a and from what we understand got pretty heavily doctored by Eric Roth, right? Right. Exactly. So. You know, a lot of the time, and that's a lot of the time what the case is, is you get like somebody who just had this one idea that they really wanted to commit to. And so people help the project through even after this person has passed away. But that's not the case with Troy Kennedy Martin. I mean, Troy Kennedy Martin was a fairly prolific filmmaker in his own regard. Uh, He created Z Cars, which is a British cop procedural show from the 60s and 70s. 
that that is hugely influential for uh you know for british cop shows in general and in, in specific and and just uh cop shows in general ridley scott for example got his start working on z cars huh. um Troy Kennedy Martin also did uh, Edge of Darkness, the British uh, miniseries from the 80s with Bob Peck um, that uh, is also just a fantastic miniseries. Um, and then as far as movies go, I mean, he did Red Heat. Like he did the the, the Schwarzenegger, uh, Walter Hill action film where uh, Schwarzenegger plays like a, a Soviet police officer who has to work with a Chicago police officer to solve a crime it doesn't have bad reviews no i mean he's he was a he was a notable filmmaker in his own right so i was it's just one of these weird things and it and, and the story seems to be that michael mann didn't really like he was he, he he was developing the screenplay with troy kennedy martin and then troy kennedy martin died and then he was offered, man was offered like $40 million to make the movie. And he turned it down because he didn't think it was going to be enough. And the project just sort of died. And then, you know, it just, it kept sort of like picking back up every couple of years with somebody maybe coming in to play a role. And so from, from that perspective, it was like, did, we didn't even think this movie was necessarily going to ever get made. And then... <laughs> And then on top of it, when it does get made, you know, we see the first announcements for the cast. And I think everybody's first impression is like scratching heads, right? Mm. It's like Adam Driver. I mean, I guess he sort of looks the part if you put the pictures. And we also just saw side. him play in Italian two years just, ago. Yeah, we just saw him in House of Gucci where he was like fine. Um, His name is all Adam Driver. I'm sure that's played yeah. into it, right? Exactly. <laughs> Driver. But then the rest of the cast, like Patrick Dempsey, I think there was a lot of people, uh, you know, in this cast that, but basically everybody who's not named Penelope Cruz, uh, or that is actually Italian, I think I, everybody else, I was sort of just like, okay, really? And the the thing is, I didn't really come out of the movie feeling any different. Like, so it just left you with a weird vibe because of all those factors is what you're saying? Yeah, ultimately, I walked out of the movie not disliking it. I did like the movie, hmm. but it it felt so much like a product of all of the strangeness that went into making it. Um, and I, it's a hard feeling to shake. Huh. Um, so you weren't blown away, but you didn't dislike it. But because you weren't blown away, you're just kind of left like pondering all of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, all of these moving parts. Um, and it's it's interesting in a year where we've had, you know, two strikes that have, you know, affected the industry so heavily to kind of to have this moment to look at a movie and see like all of the gears in motion and, you know, kind of to get that. It's almost like it's almost like we have a movie where the hood is popped and we can see the engine rolling like uh <laughs> Not to keep using car metaphors here. <laughs> you say the movies uh, also, uh, you mentioned the strike. It's distributed by Neon and got like a, a waiver to be able to be promoted during the strike. And it was funny because Adam Driver is like fairly enigmatic guy with the press, like doesn't really do a ton of press and is has some odd encounters whenever he does. But he was like very outspoken about this one uh, with the Venice Film Festival and talking about how important it was to like have companies like that that could meet the demands that SAG was SAG and the WGA were like, you know, making such that they could get the waivers. And if they could do it, why couldn't the bigger ones? So just, you know, shout out to Adam Driver for doing that. I thought it was interesting. This shows he believes in the project enough that he actually wanted to be out there for something like this when I don't think he's normally 
definitely like the heaviest press guy, you know, he likes to host SNL, which is, I think it's funny because he's really good at it. And, but in his, you know, goes for it when he does that, but he's not necessarily like the guy that's going to be out there earnestly, you know, promoting every single movie he does. And he does, and he, he was fairly prolific. Um, Fred, uh, you just saw this last night. Uh, what, what, what was what was your experience for it? Because I mean, one, I think you're seeing it. Not that the movie's killing it at the box office, but I imagine you didn't see it in the most crowded of theaters either. So, uh, what was what was what was your experience like seeing a movie that, in theory, might maybe supposed to be a high adrenaline thing? But I'm guessing you probably weren't too many other people in your theater. Yeah, I feel like most of the people were in the Wonka showing next door <laughs> instead, which I totally get. That's a fun movie, by the way. Just as an aside, <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, so. What I found strange about Ferrari is that it's really not primarily a racing movie. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike other racing movies we've seen over the past decade, because the genre has experienced a little bit of a resurgence. There was Rush back in 2014, I like Rush. I think. Yeah, I'm a, I'm really, yeah, easily the best thing Ron Howard has done this past decade. Not even close. We talked about Ford versus Ferrari already, which I believe Michael Mann was actually an executive producer on. Yeah, I, didn't re- I, didn't, I didn't realize that until I was getting ready for this. Yeah, just something that crept up in my research as well. So I guess he must have uh, had an interest in the story. And he's, maybe he's a, he didn't he's a car guy. He, <laughs> yeah, maybe he didn't even think he was going to be able to make this after all. So he kind of uh, hitched his ride to that wagon, perhaps, and thought maybe he could tell the story through that particular outlet. Um, there was Gran Turismo earlier this year, which, I mean, I had a decent time about as much of a splash at the box office as this one is. But I saw it on Netflix over Christmas, you know. It was. It had some innovative action scenes and some good drone shots, which you know, that's the kind of thing I expect from a car movie. Uh, Ferrari was a different beast altogether because, I mean, there really isn't even a ton of driving for the first hour and a half until you get to that big climactic scene of the Mille Miglia. They do have the opening sequence. It's like made to look like it's from like what, like a silent film or whatever. That's interesting. Yeah, right, nice. showing Ferrari during his racing days. Right, which um, I, I didn't realize he was actually a racer himself before he founded his car company. But um, what I was very surprised by is even though there wasn't a ton of racing, I was still dialed in, like really from like the very mm. first scene to the end. And I kind of wondered why that was, because he really didn't have a ton of major set pieces. It, it was really mostly about his relationship with his wife, with his mistress, his son, that he's struggling to officially acknowledge. Uh, the problems he has with his company because he's spending so much money on the racing division, but there's no real profits coming in elsewhere. And I think the reason for that is ultimately, you know, your frequent contributor, Daniel Lima, we know that he has a very strong passion for old men coming to terms with their mortality. Yes. And I have a very similar interest in the sense that I really enjoy, like, I wouldn't necessarily call Ferrari an older man, but He's clearly kind of getting to an age where he's forced to. He's, pu- he's supposed of, to be pushing uh, 60 at this point. He's because he's born 18. Yeah, so he's kind of like forced to reconcile some of the choices that he's made in the past. And especially some of the monsters he's created throughout his life, both in his personal life with his family that he is just parked away in a village nearby um, with his wife, not knowing about them. And also the company is created where he makes machines and products that kill people in fact it's really quite amazing because like i said there aren't a ton of racing scenes in this film but the ones that we do get there is always a fatality involved and that i think was actually a very smart way of showcasing that we don't get a lot of racing but 
whenever we do get one, like there is a fiery crash, somebody dies, and it kind of goes to show just how perilous racing was in those days and how much of a risk these drivers were taking every single time they got into a car. So I think that kind of approach where you don't really get a ton of racing to overwhelm you, but when it does happen, it's to like make a very specific, important point. That was something that I really appreciated about what Michael Mann was trying to tell us here. It's funny you mentioned Gran Turismo because there's a, a not totally dissimilar event that happens in Gran Turismo to the crash in uh-huh. Ferrari. And but like the, the point at which it comes in Gran Turismo is like the exact point in that movie where I like leaned over to the friend I was seeing with. I'm like, things are going too well. Something bad's about to happen. Even though it's, a, yeah. it's, it's based on a true story, I just like could feel at that point in the story that was when it was going to happen. And I didn't know the story of the crash at the Mille Miglia race. And I was like, that like it really caught me off guard. I mean, I guess we can get to talking a little bit about that at some point. Uh, but my overall thought on the movie was I kind of like had my expectations ruined for me by that first teaser trailer. I don't know if you guys remember when that dropped, but it was like, basically it was like a th- one minute and 30 second teaser. And it was like all just like sound and showing like, you know, brief clips of the, of the actors, but mostly just like sound and vroom vroom and showing the car from the driver's perspective, just driving. And I was like, fuck yeah, this seems really awesome. I'm so pumped for this. And I just thought it was going to be like two straight hours of that kind of shit. And so when I'm like, <laughs> and I, so I, that was what I prepared myself for. And because of that trailer and I get into this and I'm like, well, this is 75% domestic drama and I'm not totally hating it, but I was just also like, I probably hurt my uh, enjoyment of the movie itself. I had a more full theater than it sounds like Fred did, but like, I also like, Usually I have it down to a science, like when to go to the bathroom before I see the movie. So I don't have to go during the movie. I had to go to the bathroom for like the last hour and a half of this two hour movie. And I was just stubborn. So it made me like very uncomfortable. So that probably didn't help my enjoyment of it. But I, but like, I mean, I was just like, I think it would have been easier to pass the time while I had to pee. If I had something more exciting to watch than him just arguing with his mistress and his wife. And that was so much of the movie. And I'm not saying that stuff was inherently bad, but it's like, it's still a tougher sit than like vroom, vroom. You know what I mean? So I, I think that was like, I, I just had my expectations like nowhere near met. And I think that made it so I wasn't enjoying it as much as I was watching it. Even if I can appreciate some of this man reckoning with his end of, towards the end of life type of stuff, like Fred is talking about, it's even more than that. He's dealing with the legacy and his name and like, you know, just what, how he's going to be viewed. And cause he, it, it, that's one thing interesting is like, it's obviously a more, I don't, it's almost more, it's obviously more a character study than a biopic, I would say. But like this guy is incredibly egotistical. Uh, and that was something I didn't, I mean, I mean, I guess you have to, you expect someone to have an ego if they like start a big company, that's just their name. But like, I didn't like, like some of the stuff that like caught me off guard and that was interesting was to like, see this guy that is like, you know, battling all these personal demons uh, and like, but not exactly trying to keep a low profile at the same time. I mean, part of that's because he's trying to save this company, but like, he's even like, he has this new driver he brings in to help uh, try and uh, win the race. Uh, De Portago, or what's his first name? Um, Alfonso De Portago. Alfonso Alfonso De Portago, who is, uh, who is uh, dating an American actress uh, or not, excuse me, not an American actress, actually. It's her name. Her name is Linda Christian. She's actually like, part Mexican, part Dutch, I think, was I sort of saw. But like she, she's played by the actress Sarah Gadden, who is Canadian, but she just may as well sound American in the movie. But like at one point, Ferrari tells him like, hey, I don't want any actresses anywhere near this photo shoot we're going to. Or like when we're at this press conference, I don't want them taking any attention away from me. It's like, man, like you have a lock on your plate. That seems like small potatoes, really. And I, I thought it was like stuff like that was like a great insight as to who this guy was. And I could appreciate moments like that that I thought were very, very interesting, like window into who this guy was 
was, even if like maybe some of the rest of the movie felt a little repetitive to me and all the racing stuff was really well done. There just wasn't as much of it as I thought there was going to be. So I did like enjoy the movie somewhat. It's just like, it was not what I thought I was getting myself into was kind of how I would characterize it. And so I guess I had a similar reaction to Fred where I was like, oh, there's not that much racing, is there? But like, I can enjoy, I could enjoy parts of this in isolation, even if some parts work more than others for me. So. Yeah, I, I, so, you know, you touched on kind of the differentiation between, you know, this movie being a biopic and it being a character study. Mm -hmm. And I totally agree because, I mean, it's, it is going to get pegged as a biopic no matter what, because it's a real person. It all takes place in one year. I can understand that. Yeah. Well, but that's the thing for me is that what I thought was maybe one of the most intelligent decisions, I guess you would say by Troy Kennedy Martin as the screenwriter, um, is to pick just 1957. Um, as mm. the focus for the film because I think a lesser movie would have tried to do an epic biopic that deals with Ferrari's entire life and I think that's a that's a Sisyphusian task like Ferrari um, you know Enzo Ferrari like he he's the kind of person that has that had like eras in his life which most mm. people don't get to say about their lives in general but like there is there is very there's very distinctly three periods in Enzo Ferrari's life. The first is as the young driver, as the hothead when he's in his teens and his twenties, uh, in the nineteen twenties, right? He's blowing up the the <laughs> the European uh, racing circuit. He's blowing up the Italian circuit. Um, he's becoming sort of a big deal. He's getting involved in the racing scene um, and becoming a celebrity um, and sort of and begins to form his company and begins to form his reputation uh and then the war happens world war ii and uh you know all of that gets challenged he was the top dog and now you know now there's a war and now he's uh you know in trouble of losing his company he's being targeted by uh you know being targeted by fascists who uh you know want to take over the company things like that um and so this this kernel of an ego that he has, like totally, it, you know, inflates and magnifies. And then after the war, he becomes, you know, they call him in the movie, Il Comandatore. Um, they called him that. They also called him Drake, the dragon. Um, like he had he he blossoms into this period where he is the man, like he is the dude in Italy in uh, you know, in automotive engineering. Um, and it's the height of his power. It's the height of his, you know, control of his company. And then a lot of bad shit happens. His son dies. A bunch of racers under his, you know, service die uh, really tragically and terribly. Um, the company is in peril and it just breaks him. And then from that point on, you know, talking about the, you know, mid 60s, kind of through the end of his life, he basically withdraws from, you know, from his position as this, huh. like, as this really strong figure. And I didn't know, I didn't know that. I didn't even read that much up on him before he did this. It's interesting. He, yeah. And after that, he sort of, he becomes the, the, I think the Ferrari that probably maybe, I don't know that you guys, I guess would have been familiar with from like Ford versus Ferrari. Cause that's that era. It's past the tragedy in his life. Now he's just, Il grande vecchio, he's the grand old man, or you know, l'ingegnere, he's the he's the engineer. He was he goes from being this man in charge to just sort of being this wizard, basically, <laughs> this secluded wizard at the top of this tower who, 
you know, is quietly controlling things, but who is not really, who, who's just a shadow of himself. And, and, so and this, Ford versus, the events of Ford versus Ferrari take place less than 10 years after the events of this movie. So that's interesting. They take place in 66. But yeah. this, this, this point that this movie chose to focus on is that turning point that it's the it's the end of the 50s the beginning of the 60s it's where all of these tragedies befall him in this short amount of time and it completely breaks his spirit and so that you know i think the decision to set the movie in this transitional point this sort of liminal space between the height of his power and ultimately the end of his life um i think that was the smartest decision the movie could have made because I think any film that tries to tackle these three completely disparate periods of his life, <laughs> I think would have been, it would have been absurd. There would have been no way to do that well. So the decision to make this just about this one little portion of time and sort of zoom in on his, on his, on the psychology, um, I did think that was ultimately a smart decision. And yeah, it means we get a little bit less racing because we're not seeing you know, 40 years of racing history playing out. We're seeing one summer, uh, but it, I think it works. Fred, what did you find interesting about uh, getting to getting a glimpse of his personal life? Or if, I, or, or if you didn't, or if you did, I shouldn't presume that you did. No, I, I mean, I find it fascinating because you don't really get a lot of movies like that where they're so comfortable with just showing the life of the company executive without feeling the need to constantly throw in stuff to like, keep getting us excited again. Um, and, and I really appreciated the fact that Michael Mann, again, who is like in his 80s now, is really comfortable with just letting his actors like do their performances in these scenes and kind of conveying to us just how much grief and mourning there still is in that family. I mean, you get the contrast when he's visiting his mistress in the neighboring village where it's like very like sunny and it's green and it's like this beautiful idyllic place. And then he comes back home where it's dark. The curtains are still drawn shut. Uh, everybody's like dressed in dark colors. Uh, the wife greets him by shooting his pistol at him and telling him, you know, I don't really care who you fuck, but you better be home before the maid shows up because we can't use a scandal for our company. So I really found that fascinating where you have these like two totally contrasting personal lives while he's simultaneously trying to work out what's happening at the company. And there really is a lot of um, just fascinating history there with trying to keep the company exclusively Ferrari, keeping it exclusively Italian. I mean, he built that company from scratch, like in a country that had just lost a war 10 years ago, essentially. Like the Italian economy, the Italian country had gone entirely bankrupt. They basically had to start from scratch. And just this idea of like Italian manufacturing, Italian workers, like building up this company from scratch and showing the world that these essentially homemade products are perfectly capable of competing with everybody else and even excelling everybody on the racing track. That was clearly a matter of personal and professional pride for Ferrari. And Michael Mann has always done a really good job with characters who excel at their skills on the job. From his very first feature with Thief, uh, starring James Caan, like a guy who is just absolutely amazing at his chosen craft, like breaking into safes, burglary, like that's what he was good at. But simultaneously, he kept fucking up his personal life because he was struggling with reconciling his work with like going on dates with this woman whom he couldn't be fully honest with about his profession. 
And now, like decades later, you have somebody like Ferrari, who is obviously one of the very best uh, minds like in the automotive industry, in racing. And simultaneously, he has the super fucked up life at home that he keeps coming back to, um, that he also has to work out while everything seems to be going bad at work for the really first time in his life. So I thought that was a really interesting contrast uh, to play with throughout these two hours. And like I said, it kept me really invested, even if you don't necessarily have these big set pieces to kind of pull you back into the movie all the time. Yeah. And like, I guess this kid, uh, his kid, had, you know, again, uh, just recently died. So at the time where he had the affair, it was, I mean, I guess it was well before the, um, well before the events of the movie. So it's not like he was even just like, Oh, he started messing up, you know, just cause the kid was just cause the kid got sick or just cause the kid died. I mean, maybe the kid was sick at that point. I don't exactly remember when they said the illness began, but you know, it was, uh, it was, um, you know, I think it shows that he was kind of fought all along, even as he was building the company up, you know, and uh, so I think it, you know, I, I guess it does give good context for, you know, where he had been. And I, I can really, res- I can really respect how he did it. Uh, how, how did you, how did you actually feel, uh, Elijah, about the, these performances themselves? Um, you know, cause I think that goes hand in hand with how much that part of the movie works for you. I've, I mean, I feel like Shailene Woodley has been getting killed because no one needed it felt like they needed to see her do an Italian accent. Like you may as well have just like, you know, just cast some other Italian actress you didn't know as well. And maybe that works just as well. Or like Adam Driver, like people are just kind of used to it. Like we're, or Fred, you seem excited to talk about that. Where did you come down on these, uh, on these accents and these performances? So I have a very specific rant about Charlene Woodley, but yeah. Elijah, if you want to go first, I can save it if you want to. <laughs> no, you're first. ready to go. Go, go ahead. Yeah, do it. <laughs> so I find this whole argument incredibly frustrating because this whole idea that you can master a foreign accent to me is total bullshit because the whole idea of a foreign accent is that you don't have this shared experience as a community of trying to learn that language. You don't like the way somebody talks who doesn't speak their native language will always depend on where they grew up, where they moved to and how adept they are at adopting the idiosyncrasies of their new language. Me being exhibit A of that. Did you, I, I, I know I've talked with you about this before, but did you know English before moving here? I did a little okay. bit. Okay. But I mean, yes, I have a German accent, quote unquote, but my accent will sound different from a German accent from somebody who moved here from, let's say, Hamburg or Bavaria. Hmm. And then my accent will also sound different uh, from somebody who moved to, I don't know, Boston or New York or Texas. That would be hilarious if you had a and Boston then, of accent. Course, it's the fact a that Boston accent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, of course, it's the fact that I came here when I was 13. Usually when you're younger, your accent isn't going to be as strongly developed because you can still kind of learn the new language while you're young and your muscles and um, your vocal cords are still in the process of developing. And if you're older, you're likely going to have a stronger accent. So what has bothered you about the discourse with this movie specifically then? The fact that when you accuse Shailene Woodley of doing a bad Italian accent, the fact that she wouldn't even be doing a fucking Italian accent in the first place because she would be speaking Italian. <laughs> <laughs> and that irritates the shit out of me because you look at a movie like Napoleon, for example. I actually prefer that because you don't have the character speaking in a French accent because it's always going to be distracting. Because you're not trying to master an Italian accent for these movies. You really should either be speaking in the language, which they're not going to learn Italian for this movie, which makes total sense. Or just have them talk normally, because you're still going to be in Italy and they wouldn't be talking with an Italian accent anyway. Like, it's totally different if you're talking about a movie like The Godfather, for example, where you have like Italian characters living in the United States speaking English. That's a different story. 
But I don't really understand this obsession with making these characters, like in House of Gucci, speak with an Italian accent when they're in Italy, when they wouldn't be speaking English in the first place. Mm. And when it comes to that, I'd much rather just have them stick to their natural accents where they sound normal, as opposed to almost caricaturizing the language by speaking in an accent they wouldn't have in the first place. I think Elijah and I so might I have even... It's really harsh to judge Charlene Woodley for doing an Italian accent badly when I don't really know what a good Italian accent in that scenario is even supposed to sound like. Well, so like... I, I, I'm not. I, I'm not not with you. I think Elijah and I might have even touched on that on the Napoleon podcast. We like that they just let them talk like that, you know. But like, yeah, I, I said I was from the the Chernobyl school of accent work, <laughs> and I, I still stand by that. I think that's brilliant. I just don't think, yeah. I, well, that, that's just not what they did here. But like, again, Adam Driver, like again, they, like I, I get what you're saying, Fred. But like, people aren't necessarily killing Adam Driver for it, and, and a lot of people can't even probably can't even tell the difference between a Spanish accent and an Italian accent. So they're cool with Penelope Cruz, you know, just yeah. talking like Penelope Cruz. But like, I don't think people are killing Adam Driver as much. Did you? Did you like? struggle any more or less with like how adam driver sounded versus how shailene woodley sounded or is it more just like you were just or are you just judging them more on the performances and the voices so i have a bit of a personal struggle with that just as an add-on normally when i watch movies at home i always have subtitles on mm -hmm. because as a non-native english speaker it helps me immensely to actually see the words on the screen um I eventually got used to it, but for the first 10 minutes, it was a bit of a struggle because when you have characters speaking in these fake Italian accents, it just becomes harder to understand them. I mean, that's just par for the course because that is not how these actors normally speak, obviously. And I, yeah, once I kind of got into the rhythm, I wasn't really bothered by it as much anymore. In fact, I didn't really pay attention to Charlene Woodley's accent anyway because I was just kind of like focusing on what she was saying, if that makes sense. So I thought these performances for the most part were really good, especially Penelope Cruz's at avoiding cliche because you very easily, when you have a character like that, can turn into the hot-blooded Italian stereotype. Kind of like that frantic, like grieving, like uh, mother who just lost her kid. And it's very easy, like if you lay on like the performance or the accent too thickly, that you get into a territory where you just can't take these characters seriously anymore. And I thought it was a really nice way for them to kind of maintain that seriousness and dignity in those scenes where, yeah, characters are yelling at each other, characters are fighting, but you still get the sense that there is so much hurt in this home that it never becomes hyperbolic or exaggerated. So I thought the performances did a really good job of grounding all of that. Even though, once again, it's just kind of hard for me, like listening to them do all of these accents when in reality, they really shouldn't be doing that. Seems like you're in agreement on with Fred on that, because you, like you said about your Chernobyl uh, opinions, Elijah, but did any of these uh, performances in spite of that particularly really work for you? Yeah, I mean, well, I guess work for me, right? I was going to say, uh, you know, my problem with Shailene Woodley is not that she had a bad accent, it's that she just didn't do a good job. <laughs> this movie, but that that's my opinion um i i i liked all the performances i do think i would agree penelope cruz gives the best performance i mean i'm not surprised by that you know she she is a a high caliber um she's starting lineup actress all pro um so you know i'm not uh I, i'm not particularly surprised by that um Adam Driver, I thought was good. I, it's there's an interesting sort of quality to the performances, uh, you know, in in any given Michael Mann film, but especially ones like this. And, and again, 
you know, we're talking about him working in a uh, within the, within the borders of a true story, and that's it, not really it's not directly comparable to you know to to the ins the insider because the insider has these kind of like it is very specifically about like these two guys sort of thing but there's always um a, a sort of a, a way that michael mann directs actors where it's just sort of, sort of this ripped from the headlines perspective on on these characters um and, and it it actually really struck me a day or two after watching the movie because i was reminded of a picture um a picture that i had a still image that i had seen before um and did not immediately uh you know kind of comprehend its connection to this movie um it's a it's a picture that's called the kiss of death mm. um and it's a picture of linda christian kissing alfonso de portago uh at the i forget which town it is but basically it was the stop like 15 minutes before uh portago's fatal crash during the 57 millimia um and and it I, you know i i remember it clicked for me i was like oh those two that's those are the characters in the movie that's that picture that's that moment and it just sort of struck me as like that's the way that michael like besides ferrari and his wife right like that's the way Michael Mann has kind of that's like the mode that he's operating in with all these characters is this just sort of like there's a there is an intentional level of uh, of abstraction and indirectness with the relationship between the audience and these characters. It's like watching them drive by, basically. And so you have to put yourself in that mindset to just know like you're not going to get necessarily as intimate with a lot of these people as you will with the main characters specifically um so so from the primary cast obviously you know adam driver and penelope cruz i thought did excellent but you know you talk about sarah gadden and uh, gabriel leon who plays alfonso de portago again you've got rant like randos showing up like jack o'connell as peter collins and patrick dempsey as piero taruffi who i didn't even recognize jack i love Same. jack o'connell and I did not recognize him until like three quarters of the way through the movie. <laughs> Jack O'Connor, Jack O'Connor, or Patrick Dempsey. Jack O'Connor. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even with the even with the white hair, I could still recognize yeah, Patrick yeah, Dempsey. Yeah, yeah. But Good. well, I was also very happy for him. Like he's like one of those guys, like in the Michael Fassbender crew. I'd rather be a race car driver than an actor. And it's right. like, oh, you get to be in this movie. Good for you. <laughs> so, so you know, those you're not going to get deeply personal with these guys you're only going to get these glimpses into their life and i think in that mode they all did they did admirably there there could have been a world in which all of these guys ham it up to be more recognizable but they're not they're just normal people who are driven by the same set of motivations the same pool of toxicity which i mean i think we're gonna we'll talk about kind of the thematic material as we roll on but like that that uniting factor i think is what made them all really good side characters because it's just you're there's not there there is this veil between the audience and these characters and there's there's really nothing we can do about it and we just have to sort of let it wash over us and Even so 
Go ahead. I was just going to say, even if you didn't mean to, you almost were just taking a shot at House of Gucci when you were talking about people not going crazy in the performances. Uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah, I don't know what else there is to say about that. I, I, would, I would agree. Um, that that would have been a movie that would have benefited maybe more from that rep from the headlines perspective rather than trying to you know overly psychologize every single character and every single interaction but yeah i mean that that was my feeling about the cast i do i i will stand by what i said i think shailene woodley accent or no accent is a weak link here and maybe that's partially on the script she doesn't necessarily have a lot to do um but to me it was kind of like she was always in i'm just gonna keep rolling with the car metaphors here she was mm -hmm. always in first gear for the whole movie um i, I you know you with, with adam driver and and penelope cruz they get this opportunity to really kick it up a notch and i just didn't i didn't see that with shailene woodley at all and again maybe not her fault but that, that's yeah, well, I just very quickly, it. I wouldn't even disagree with that assessment. I just found it weird that people specifically focused on her accent a lot, which I didn't really think was really the key problem with that performance. I agree that there just isn't as much interesting material there as there is for whenever Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz share the screen. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, Fred, I did though. notice that as well. I'm not going to pretend that that's not the case. I agree with you, Fred, though. Like, and that, like, I'd already heard a lot of people praising Penelope Cruz before I saw it, and it's like a fiery performance, but at the same time, I don't think turns into a caricature and so i give her props for that uh i also wanted to like shout out like i mean adam driver like yeah i guess yeah you could say the voice he like maybe has like he has some idea of how to do the voice down in a way that isn't distracting even though we all know he's adam driver but i was also kind of impressed with the physical transformation i mean he's probably wearing some kind of fat suit or something like that uh because like you're gonna see every time he like wears those high-waisted pants it's like he looks we adam we know adam driver is a lanky dude uh, but like, I, I just thought like with the, the hair, the makeup, the prosthetics, the whatever kind of fat suit he's wearing, but, but also like just the way he moves. I mean, I didn't really have a trouble. Like I, I did, I didn't ever really have trouble thinking about like, oh, this is ridiculous that he's playing this age up the age up this much. Like I thought he carried that, carried that look fine. And so, I mean, to the extent I wanted to give him credit for something other than what we've already talked about, I thought they did a pretty good job of just like, you know, making him credibly seen like some a 50 something, as opposed to like the 38 year old he was when he filmed this thing. So yeah, every time he stood up and we get the, the shot of the beer belly, I was like, he's just like me for real. For real. <laughs> I, I, I heard somewhere that like he, that like Enzo is actually a shorter dude. I didn't, I don't, I, I, I tried to Google that a little bit before he started. I didn't see that, but like Adam Driver's tall. So, I mean, I didn't know if he was supposed to be giving off short guy energy, but like he, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I still, I still enjoyed the performance too. Like I said, like we've all talked about it. Like it's a pretty complicated it's pretty complicated stuff he has to do there between you know like you said being like the egotistical businessman but like you know dealing with all that strife at home it's it, i think he's being asked to do a lot while you know like putting on an accent and putting on a lot of different you know things to transform his appearance so, so i think he i think he's yeah. you know making it harder on himself through all those other means but still pulling off a lot of the emotional beats that that guy has to pull off De definitely yeah. to to be clear ferrari was not short he was six foot Two, I think six foot three. He was he was actually a, a quite a big dude. You can okay, find I don't pictures, know. pictures okay, of him good. with other people. He's he that was it was part of his image. He was mm -hmm. he was strikingly large. He was mm -hmm. a big guy. All right, so then it is very appropriate casting. I, also, I don't know who, who who was saying that. I can't remember. Who. Yeah, I also thought for a character that just kind of radiates trauma and trying to overcome this tragedy in his life, he was like really funny at times. Terms too. There were some like really like deadpan humorous lines 
that got some laughs on my showing. Uh, there was like one. Do moment, you remember any uh, of them? Because I don't. I don't. I feel like maybe I do remember laughing a couple times. But I just can't remember. No, there was like that really like tragic scene almost where um, like his uh, I forgot the guy's name, but uh, the driver who dies during the test drive pretty early on. And then mm. he's just standing there and he's giving this long monologue about how he died because he wasn't focused, because his mother uh, got to him, because he was supposed to marry a rich girl and he was no longer focused on his driving, but he was uh, being influenced by his mother's meddling, just as his own mother had made a comment about uh, his feelings about the matter. And he just kind of dryly says, you know, nothing uh, will kill a racing car driver faster than his mother meddling in uh, his affairs. It was also like just kind of funny. It was also just kind of funny that his mom didn't really seem to like him that much. Uh, yeah. I mean, which is not necessarily always, I mean, it's tragic in its own way, but it was like very strange. It's like, I mean, you would have almost thought it was like, a, I, I guess that is his mom, right? It's not like a mother-in-law. Yeah. yeah. You would have almost talk, thought it was like a mother Yeah. Talk about cash shout outs. Uh, Daniela Piperno was phenomenal as, mm. uh, as, I, I don't Adele's, I don't, I don't I think it's Adele something. I don't know, but his mother, Adele Ferrari. Hmm. Um, I, I think it's Adelgisa is how you say her name. I will not question. You. I don't know. In, in any case, I thought she was great. Um, just and just the, the matter of factness to it too. Like you want to talk about movies that don't feel the need to explain themselves, uh, to to audience that can't quite follow along. Like I love how there's not. Like, they don't make some big show of, like, oh, his mom is still living with him kind of thing. She's just sort of there, and it's just shown to be normal and what's expected. Mm -hmm. yeah. The other uh, funny line that I distinctly remember is when he first meets Deportago, uh, and he just kind of drives on, like, without talking to him. Like, he gets confronted about that later, and he's like, yes, I saw you there. And then the light turned green, and I left. <laughs> I mean, there were just a couple of lines where you just kind of feel like, I mean, this is a guy who just like oozes like he oozes respect from everybody in his company so he can get away with saying stuff like that because you know he has built this whole persona for himself and again he was called il comodatore and the, the commander essentially like he was expecting like his underlings to be soldiers willing to sacrifice themselves for him and for his company and there is that really excellent monologue that he gives when he's sitting at the table with all of his drivers and he talks about how if you get in a Ferrari car, like my expectation is that you drive to win, even if it means sacrificing yourself in the process. And it's just amazing how he never really raises his voice during that whole thing. But you can just tell that everybody is just kind of embarrassed by their performance previously, because clearly they weren't taking it seriously enough mm -hmm. based on what his reaction was. So it was just very impressive how he was able to command that respect um, in the room without really having to resort to that typical italian shouting and ranting that we sometimes see so just another case of where you have a character getting that point across without resorting to the usual cliches and stereotypes that we would sometimes expect to see in a movie about italian so it just really uh keeps maintaining that tone very well throughout the entire thing in in fact i would go so far as to argue that maybe one of the most michael mann-ish traits of the whole movie right is that it cuts away right before he does that on a few occasions because mm. the times where we i mean like as the public where we get most of our perception of enzo ferrari is from him speaking to the press right mm. uh you know the interviews that he gave in his gen like his 
castigating journalists and yelling at them and whatnot for miss you know not getting facts right and things like that i think there's like two occasions where he he's about to do that and the movie cuts away it shows you like one line and then it cuts to something else and i think it's it's michael mann sort of acknowledging that it's like yes we all we all expect that um and and because of that it's almost like we don't really need to see it we know what's going on and to show it is just to play into a stereotype and uh you know i thought that that that's the thing that michael mann does a lot i feel like all of his movies in some way are about subversion right uh you know and this is it's a racing movie that doesn't have a lot of racing but it's it, it subverts in a lot of other ways and i think that's one of them is is not is not pitching the ball to to have these moments of like people blowing up and being all you know ridiculous so uh so fred mentioned uh like just kind of inspiring them before the race and that's that's i think that's also a good jumping off point to just like ask you guys a little bit more about the i want to talk about a little bit about the racing itself and the how that race goes but also the resolution of the domestic strife before we like actually finish this thing uh and like i think we touched on a lot of the reference points for this movie uh before we actually really got into it but i but i am curious fred like as someone that has you know, it was probably in, in advance of doing this was thinking about other racing movies you'd seen and recently watched Gran Turismo. Uh, did we, we obviously all watched Ford versus Ferrari. Was there anything that like kind of stuck out to you as something you appreciated that was just something unique about how they portrayed racing, particularly here? Let me just ask you a quick question. Mm -hmm. uh, just based on this movie, and I don't know if you looked this up beforehand, about how many drivers do you think participated in the Mille Miglia in 1957, give or take? Oh, well, it looks like it's kind of like the, well, I guess we did see it's kind of like the Le Mans thing where they'll, where they'll swap out drivers if they need to, right? Um, so, and there's a decent amount of teams. So I, I, my, my guess off the top of my head would be like, you know, somewhere between like 50 and 75, maybe? It's about 300 cars, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, but yeah, but which is kind of funny because all you really see in the movie are the Ferrari cars and the Maserati cars. Mm. So I briefly was under the impression, oh, wait a minute. So this is just a cross-country race involving, what, like 10 cars, basically? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really appreciated that the movie just kind of like reduced the conflict to those companies, though, because that's what Ferrari was primarily interested in. Mm -hmm. And Maserati was very clearly like in the process of going out of business at the time because they also couldn't compete. I was just going to say, there's something to be said if they tried to like show the full scope of that. I wouldn't have not appreciated it, but like at the same time, probably easier for the story you're telling and smarter to do it how they did it. Right. It just allows you to focus more on the cars that are actually important for this particular race. And you don't really get a lot of this cross-country racing either. Normally, you have something like Rush, which is about Formula One, or Ford versus Ferrari, where the climactic scene was at Le Mans. Uh, same thing at, with Gran Turismo, actually, where you just have cars really going around the track. And it's not the same thing as the very real dangers of just like getting into a racing car and driving a thousand miles across the country on public roads. Mm. There are very serious dangers involved in that, especially in the 1950s, when a lot of the strict regulations that you would have in place nowadays really do not exist yet. So I thought that was just a really fascinating way to just for the movie to pivot during the last 20, 30 minutes, where you don't really get a lot of racing beforehand. And now you really have the entire emphasis beyond that race. And Ferrari really only occasionally checks in on the progress and the focus is more on the drivers. And that's kind of the last thing I wanted to say about that, because mm -hmm. Elijah brought up how the movie is very good about subverting expectations. The whole movie kind of sets Deportago up as this protege, right? As the newcomer, who's like this like fun daredevil, like with a young love. And 
you think is kind of going to be the next big thing at Ferrari. And of course, he's going to do super well in this race because of that. He's going to prove that he's one of the best. He's going to come in second, even come in first. And then all of a sudden he's dead. Did you know about That's that going that. in or did, was that a surprise to you? I So I knew that there was going to be a major crash with mm -hmm. several casualties in the movie. I But I didn't know who was going to be involved and who was going to be responsible for that. Mm -hmm. So I did not expect him to be the one who would cause it and be the fatality there. And we had like, I don't know, seven or eight people in my showing maybe. Like you could just hear like a collective gasp in the room because that's when the sound also goes out and there's just nothing there. And luckily I had an appreciative audience and you could just really tell how it just went completely silent in the movie theater. And everybody was actually shocked because they weren't expecting that at all. So I thought that was a very effective way of doing that where it just kind of completely pulls the rug out from under you where you had a character who was really set up as this big new star just kind of getting, yeah, taken off the board within a few seconds. And it's really quite shocking. So I thought that was a very well done scene just with how it kind of hit you out of nowhere yeah my theater reacted similarly and i'm pretty sure i had a i gasped it out as well myself and like I, I i myself don't know if i necessarily had anything novel to add to what you said fred i th i do think there's something you said for and i i meant to look into a little bit more like it seemed like they i mean not that they necessarily feel on location location exactly on the same streets but they did a good job of making this like you know feel like a, a very unique kind of setting for a race and I, I i'm glad you highlighted that part of it uh elijah did you have any other feelings on the its depiction of this particular race that you that you were really impressed with or and did you have any kind of visceral reaction to that crash yeah i mean i uh, so i was aware of the crash before going in in fact the, the fact of the matter is it wasn't even the only fatal accident at uh in the in the millimia in 1957 there was another fatal accident i believe a dutch driver for triumph uh died a couple of hours later in a crash um so i i figured that they were gonna portray that i mean i think you get some inkling of it from the trailers but the the way in which it's portrayed it's easily i think one of the most shocking scenes of the year. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's absolutely brutal. It's completely uh, unflinching, and I think that's sort of the point. And and that's what, in a way, you know, we keep we keep kind of hitting back on this subversion. I think that's subversive in its own way. We're trained right to think, you know, in racing movies to expect accidents it's it's pretty much part and parcel of the genre right like every racing film's got an accident but there's almost this like gentleman's agreement that it's like well we don't really show the accidents um you know in rush they show the accident but they don't you know there's not like a close-up of nikki lauda's face on fire in the <laughs> in the movie right there is a kind of a sense of sort of respect you know quote-unquote respect to the tragedy um, and that's the way that it's always portrayed in in racing films. Ford versus Ferrari ends with a tragedy, and we don't see it. It happens off camera. We only see the aftermath. Um, so in a way, this brutality is a subversion of the genre standards to show us boldface, nine people being just like completely fucking obliterated, dismembered, like terribly, terribly, brutally, uh, violently is. It's it's shocking and it is unexpected, um, and it 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 really made me question why we expect that, why we feel that we 
we can't see that or why we shouldn't see that in racing films when that's sort of the draw, right? That's sort of the perverted draw of racing films is the risk, is the danger. The excitement lies in, you know, big, you know, two-ton two bodies of metal, you know, flying down a road at uh, at high speeds. The danger is part and parcel to that. And so to, to, to confront the audience with that, uh, and it's not, it's honestly not the only time in the movie that it happens when, uh, when, and I think his name is Enzo Carlotti, um, or Giorgio, Giorgio Carlotti, maybe something like that. Carlotti. I know that's his last name. I think uh, maybe I'm wrong, but, uh, Castellotti, not Carlotti. Mm -hmm. Sorry. E Eugenio Castellotti. There we go. I know I was going to get it eventually. <laughs> uh, the test driver, right. Who dies in the, on the track, on the test track, uh, pretty early on in the film, even his death is is portrayed in such a way that I think there was like, there was almost like a scoff in my audience at least because people like couldn't believe it. You see him getting like thrown from the cab of the car, like launched viciously from the cab of the car as it flipped over. And I like people were just, like, they couldn't even process what they had just seen, but it happened so quickly. And, and I almost wonder if in a way it's sort of like, subliminal prep like getting the audience ready to expect that that you might see something like that later and yet yeah. again the deadpan humor where you have adam driver like seconds after this happens he turns to deportago and says come to my office on monday you got an interview yeah. now basically got a dead man there's a spot open we're hiring again yeah that might have been one of the parts where i laughed at him now that i think about it um and just his his way of going about things i um but no, I, I'm I'm with you, Elijah. On like, what 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 I added that though is that like it didn't feel like, I guess because I, I guess because I knew it was a true story. It just did, like a lot of times maybe sometimes people avoid showing that level of gore just because for fear of feeling gratuitous in some way. But I didn't really feel that way. I was like I was kind of like put off, and I was like, oh god, ugh. But like I wasn't like, oh that's that, that's something that shouldn't have gone there. I didn't think that. I was like I was just like, wow, I'm I'm, I'm impressed they did go there. I guess and that they were bold enough to do it and to just kind of show the horrors of what this is and like why and i mean it's probably a i think it's a good a good way of putting you in that time and place of just showing like how we do we, we we weren't as sophisticated with certain things back then and how we like thought about you know protecting pe people in certain ways and this was just like a wow i can't believe we used to like let people sit just sit along the side of the road like i think cars going this fast with no protection it's kind of is wild but i think it like puts you in the time and place in a weird way uh, and, and I, and I didn't feel like they were like, you know, doing anything like, like, you know, totally crazy by going there in a way that felt inappropriate. And I think that they, they pulled that off is impressive. Yeah. I, I, I guess I, if we don't have any other thoughts on the racing and you got, well, I was always, I'll circle back for any final thoughts, guys. I want to ask you a little bit about how this movie ends. Cause I think it's pretty interesting. I did my own little research on what happened with Piero now Piero Ferrari, uh, afterward, it seems like he's doing okay. So no one should feel too bad for him after you, uh, watch the end of this movie. Uh, but you know, I think it's a, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Cause, um, at, we've been reminded throughout the movie that, uh, Laura has like a pretty big, uh, stake in Ferrari and can kind of like hold up any deal. So uh, this whole thing where she's like saying like, he, he wants her to, he wants to have control over shares so he doesn't have to like he can strike whenever he needs to make a deal to like get the funding to like save things or you know sell something or buy something whatever it is he needs her shares at any point and she's like all right well he's like she's like you need to give me five hundred thousand dollars he's like well i'll give you a check but you can only cash it once i get whatever cash infusion we are going to get 
Besides that, you kill the company. And for a minute, it looks like she's going to do that. Then she says, "Well, you know what? Actually, I'll give I'll, I'll I'll give I'll give you back everything you need if you just like don't allow that kid to take my last name while I'm alive." And um, he goes along with it, even if he seems like he's leaning another way for much of the last act of this movie. But like, I, I guess my question for you is, Fred. Uh, first of all, just like, how did that entire exchange work for you? Is like kind of like a a bit of a you know a final climactic stretch of this movie. And did you kind of buy that that was like, you know, I don't say do you buy it. It's based on a true story. But did it did it kind of track for you based on how everything had gone in the movie to that point that he would ultimately make that choice? So I actually found her perspective on this entire thing more interesting than that final scene, because you really do get the sense that she takes a lot of pride in having such a strong stake and ownership in that company, even though it's ultimately like he's the one who's running it on a day-to-day business he's the face of the company but she really makes some like she seems like extremely smart and insightful like in certain scenes where even though she is still grieving her son like you get the sense that she is still like very invested in making sure that the success of the company which is the legacy they've built together survives and is sustained and i would would agree with that yeah you almost get the sense like in that final scene that she is like way more level-headed about the whole thing than she is where she realizes you really like have the power here like you have money like you need to start playing dirty here you need to start like telling the press what's up you need to start paying them off you do have that ability because again a lot of this movie was really about him coming to terms with having made a killing machine and I mean, this is a bit of a stretch to make that comparison, but you're what you, I mean, Oppenheimer was a huge movie this year, right? We also have a man kind of trying to come to terms with his legacy and that the product he made killed a whole bunch of people. Like obviously Ferrari like, didn't have nearly as many people on his conscience, but now he has to come to terms with the fact that even though he gave all those speeches about when you get into one of my cars, you're, you have to be willing to sacrifice your life. But obviously those five kids never signed up for that and the other people who lost their lives. So he really is forced to reckon with the fact that the company that he built from the ground up like, is responsible for a number of deaths at this point. And she is much better about sort of having that cognitive dissonance and detaching herself from those losses and telling him, no, your responsibility is to the company now and it's your job to save that company. And if that means that the kid can't have your last name, well, then you need to decide what is more important to you ultimately. Hmm. And again, that I think is really what Michael Mann's movies have been about a lot of the time where at the end of the day, when there is a choice to be made between salvaging his personal life and getting personal happiness, ultimately the business and the profession comes first. And that's something that I also actually really liked in a movie you said you don't really care for, which is Public Enemies, where you kind of get the sense that John Dillinger at the very end is more obsessed with his professional legacy than his personal legacy. And that's why he keeps on going as opposed to building a life for himself with his girlfriend uh, in that movie. So it really kind of tied together very nicely at the end with what Michael Mann has usually been about, where the guy will obviously do what is right for his life's work and his company as opposed to fixing his personal life and going for his own personal happiness. That tracks, uh, Elijah, anything else really kind of stick with you about the end and how they executed it? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've mentioned it kind of uh, sporadically throughout, but to me, I thought this was a, a I, what really, for me, honestly, saved the film completely was the sort of the brilliance of its perspective on um, on toxic masculinity, right? And um, there's a lot of there's a lot of aspects to that throughout the entire film. It takes it takes shape in a lot of different ways. It takes shape in the way that he pits his drivers against one another, uh, you know, intentionally or not. It's a, it takes shape in the way that he pits his company against other companies that he should have respect and, you know, and, and compassion for because they're all in the same boat, right? Uh, you know, we kind of touched on, like, his relationship with Maserati, but it's really everybody. I mean, he, he has this, such a, like a negative opinion of Fiat, but he needs to go for them for help. I, I was going to say, um, I, I, that was an interesting scene that I, we hadn't talked about and, when he has to call the Fiat guy. And, and you know, the, and, and, and it extends past the bounds of the movie. I mean, he had he had feuds with uh, Ascari, who uh, is, you know, was a another a racer who worked for him at one point. And then... Um, you know, had you know, kind of falling out with, but you know, we touched on the idea that it's like he's built this company in an era when it was under so much pressure from people outside and for and and under pressure internationally for Italy to prove its metal as a car manufacturer, and yet he kind of can't get out of his own way of just fighting the people the closest, you know, that are closest to him. Um, and so I uh. I, what I really liked about the ending is I felt like it was the most delicate way to show that maybe he's grown up a little bit in that regard. Because ultimately, yes, he is putting the company first. He is respecting his wife's request and helping to, you know, repair the company. And I, I, I think, Fred, honestly, it'll help to repair his personal relationship, too. I mean, he at the end of the day, it doesn't really... Uh, you know, we know that from the credits, right, that it, he he never really patched things up with Laura. But, uh, you know, th that decision was to stabilize things and to to not blow things up, to not have a tantrum. And so he makes that decision. But ultimately, what I loved is the ending where he takes Piero to the mausoleum and says, uh, let's go meet your brother. Because what it's showing there, right, is that he is not, even if he is not going to give Piero his last name at this moment, right? He is trying to instill in him a respect and a love for brotherhood, for this idea that you have to, you have to reconcile with the people around you and you can't, uh, you know, you can't always be fighting. And I, that's the that's the way it's the way in a way Michael Mann likes to end a lot of his movies, um, and it's taken some more you know striking turns right. Obviously the ending of Heat, I think we've all seen Heat right. It ends on yep. the shot of uh, of Robert De Niro and Al Pacino you know kind of doing the man handshake as as Robert De Niro's character dies. Uh, collateral ends a very similar way with, with uh, you know, with with Jamie Foxx uh, re recognizing and kind of showing a, a last respect to uh, to Vincent, played by Tom Cruise, as he dies. So what I liked was that this movie didn't it didn't do that. It didn't do the obvious thing of having him like you know 
uh you know hold you know tr like like going and you know seeing the portago's grave or something you know it didn't it didn't end with that what it ended with was a much more delicate representation of the same idea um this sort of th this 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 recognition that the toxicity that has underpinned so much of his life um that, that this competition that he's bred and all of his all these people around him uh maybe it wasn't really the right way to go and and that until and, that, until ford comes knocking well even then i mean you know we all saw ford versus ferrari in that movie i mean he he's putting up a fight but he's a different man than mm -hmm. the than than the ferrari in this movie sure. and that's because this is this is like i said at the beginning this is that transition point where he he i think he what what man what michael mann and what troy kennedy martin are kind of saying here is like this is the point where he realizes that it's time to cast off the commander to to put aside the the fire and the anger and the toxicity and to just try and be uh, not even try to be a good person but just try and be a person for himself mm. try yeah. and, and try and to try and you know, to to recognize what his value has been to the world, and to make that his 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 leading, uh, you know, thing in life. And even though this was a transition into the last kind of phase of his life, you one could argue it's probably his most successful. You know, uh, Ferrari SPA becomes, you know, a company that is stable and and really in the period after this movie gains the reputation that it that it truly does. The cars that he builds after this, you know, after this movie and the period after this movie uh, are some of the most sought after cars ever. Um, and and his reputation is intact. And, you know, you know that because the film tells you that eventually Piero Lardi becomes Piero Ferrari and begins working at, at Ferrari as well. Uh, Piero Lardi is, is, has been at Ferrari, yeah, for a very long time now. Uh, Piero Ferrari has been at Ferrari for a very long time. And, and even he, you know, has his participation as, you know, supervisor of road car production. He, you know, helped to oversee the production of the F40, which is probably up there with the McLaren F1 as one of the greatest cars of all time. So, you know, even if the ending feels kind of downbeat, it, it is a success. It is, it is a happy ending. I agree. And I think like, Again, I think everything that came before it, even if I found it a little repetitive and a little bit of a drag at times, I think it does, you know, it, it, it felt like it, it made sense where they got him to is what I would say. So I, I was cool with, I was cool with the final, final ending notes as well. Fred, any other final thoughts you have on Ferrari before we wrap up? I just hope more people go see it. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of stuff at the movie theater right now that's going to be competing for Oscar nominations uh, in the next couple of weeks. And I feel like this one might get drowned out a little bit some of the bigger players but i really do think it's worth taking the time to go see this it's two hours long so um it's doesn't have the length of one of those like super long racing epics so i definitely think people should or, uh, or other michael mann movies um other michael mann movies <laughs> even yeah so but yeah speaking of i mean that's why i think people should also make time for it because he hasn't made a movie in eight years who knows whether we're going to get another one again so um yeah, just I mean, pay your respect to one of the all-time greats and go see. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a shame how like all the people that all the distributors just released everything. It felt like in the last three weeks, it made it very hard. Um, 
and has made it hard to like uh, figure out timing for how to do podcasts on all of them. Um, Elijah, any other final thoughts on Ferrari before we finish this one up? I mean, I think we've about covered it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, usually this is where I'll I'll use my call outs for the the uh, the technical yeah, side of things. Any any tech any um, of your tech bro- tech brother and you want to shout out? Yeah, I mean, I thought the I, I I think the editing was probably one of the saving graces of the film that keeps things kind of kind of rolling. Um, it's not. Uh, you know, I think it's in a movie that is that is kind of as slight as this one is with its narrative. Uh, you know, the the, the editing is going to be a difficult task. Um, and so I I think Michael Mann very smartly brought on uh Pietro Scalia, uh, not smartly because he's Italian, smartly because he is the guy who edited JFK and Black Hawk Down. <laughs> um, so. A, a guy who is very much capable of, you know, handling the kind of, you know, the girth of a story like this. Sure. Um, and sort of keeping it, uh, keeping it at about two hours, because I'm, I'm sure there is footage on the, on the cutting room floor that we did not see. Knowing Michael Mann, uh, I am sure there is more material, you know, do we even want to see it? I don't know. Probably not. Mm. Uh, so the the fact that we got what we got, I think, was is a tribute to uh, a testament to Pietro uh, Scalia's talents as an editor. Yeah, well said. Uh, I don't have much else to add. I would just again, I, I would I would echo Fred's sentiments. Like, if you have a chance to see it, like even if there's not quite as much uh, racing as I was hoping for, definitely something that is enhanced by going in the theater uh, for sure. Don't just like you know wait for streaming. You know, support people that like to make movies like Michael Mann does. Uh, I uh, yeah. Um, Fred, before we get out of here, it's, uh, I hadn't talked to you much in the last couple of months. I know you've been playing catch up on a lot of movies. Anything you've especially liked in the last couple of months you wanted to uh, recommend to the listeners? So I do think uh, people who are into racing movies should try to at some point watch The Grandfather of the Mall, which is uh, John Frankenheimer's Grand Prix, uh, which came out, I believe, in 1966. Uh, I've never seen that. The sound. Yeah, it, it's about it's three hours long. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it won the sound Oscars and the editing Oscar. Uh, the year it came out, uh, really spectacular racing stuff. There's also a whole bunch of talking and personal drama that's not quite as exciting as what happens when people get into the cars. Uh, but it is a really intense experience just uh, with the racing scenes alone. Um, has an international ensemble cast. Uh, James Garner uh, is the main actor in it. And yeah, like some stuff that holds up really well. I watched it during the pandemic a few years back. And yeah, some of those racing scenes are really still quite uh, impressively shot. So definitely something I think that people even nowadays can appreciate. Other than that, I would like to draw people uh, to January 11th, which is when uh, single tickets at Sundance go on sale. Um, They're doing the same thing again that they've done the previous few years, uh, where they will make uh, a lot of their lineup available online. And people will be able to purchase individual tickets uh, for a time span between, I believe it's January 26th to the 29th, where some of those movies are going to be available uh, to watch online. It's usually even a little more than a three-day period. Yeah, the problem is it's, I know it's short this year because I will actually not really be able to partake. What? Because I will be uh, going on a winter slash ski trip that weekend uh, oh. when all of those become available. So I only have one night really to watch any of them. So I might order one or two <laughs> and see if I can get them knocked out. Yeah, and they're uh, weird about like having to watch the time and just interested. I would highly recommend people uh, 
Go yes. check out uh, the lineup to see and see if they can get tickets. Yeah, I still need to like if like find an article that summarizes like what's coming. Or I, I bet they already have it on their website. Maybe too. I guess you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. everything's I, on their I, website. I, I, I haven't I haven't checked out most of them myself yet. Partly because I won't be there to watch most of them. But yeah, they're also again, weird about the windows in which you can watch them, which is kind of frustrating. But like, it's a worthwhile experience. Like, I think Fred and I both found movies that have been amongst our highest rated of the last couple of years, and at that one. Um, so you know, always something fun to check out if you guess right. Um, also, well, I, you might uh, get a chance to watch a movie that will never see the light of day, like Magazine Dream. Sundance earlier this year, and I had a chance to see, and nobody will ever uh, have that pleasure again. So, uh, who knows? Maybe you will actually be able to treat yourself to something uh, that yeah, you're, you're in an exclusive club, club now, Fred. You'll be able to brag about because nobody else will get the chance to. So, you never know what might happen. Yeah, Fred is still, you know, campaigning for that Jonathan Majors Oscar. Yeah, so um, <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> I, I did predict he was going to get nominated. Uh, thankfully, they didn't put money on you. It. You were not alone there. Everyone that saw that movie yeah. said that. Like, so it's just it's it's just like a crazy little wrinkle in this whole thing. Like, you, all all twelve of them. <laughs> but like on yeah. top, on I top. Read my... I haven't read my Letterboxd review since I watched it at Sundance. Maybe I shouldn't reread it. I feel like I'm going to have a lot of uh, lot of regrets about the stuff I wrote in there. So it is just crazy because like not the general public doesn't so much know about that, but they know of like you know Jonathan Majors doing Creed three, doing um, obviously doing all the Marvel stuff. Like Lovecraft Country was a show that got a decent amount of buzz. It's like yeah, all these pretty high profile projects. It's like and that that alone is a big enough story. It's like yo, this guy. Pro- it sounds like by all accounts, this guy might have gotten nominated for an Oscar if. Uh, all this stuff hadn't happened, come to the come to light. It's it's it's, it's such a crazy story. Uh, Elijah, anything else you've been watching recently you would like to recommend for the listeners? Yeah, there's a movie I watched uh, shortly, like last week, so shortly after I saw Ferrari, um, and it was it was just funny because uh, you know I couldn't help but think of kind of some of the thematic similarities, uh, and that is the 1990 film Mountains of the Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, Directed by Bob Rafelson, which is weird in its own right. Why do I know that name? What else is he known Bob, for? Bob Rafelson directed Five Easy Pieces. Oh, yeah. Um, right, right. And, and a lot of the American New Wave films from that era. This is much later in his career. Um, and uh, it's a Victorian era adventure film. So very far outside of his usual wheelhouse. Mm. Um, but it's a it's a it's based on a true story uh, or you know, loosely based on a true story about uh, Richard Francis Burton and John Speak, who were two um, ex-British military Ooh. officers who... Uh, I read a book about them recently. Yeah, Burton, Bur- the Burton and Speak book is very... It's it's good foundational reading for anybody who wants to be a, you know, a nerd in that kind of history. Um, they're basically, they're two ex-British uh, British military officers during the Victorian era who... Uh, set off in an expedition through uh, East and Central Africa to try and find uh, the headwaters of the Nile. Um, and it, again, it's the kind of film that's sort of a subversion because, you know, you hear that premise, right? And you think rollicking, you know, huge adventure film, and there are plenty of adventure elements to it. But what it's really about is these two dudes who, uh, you know, who have this terrible falling out because of toxic masculinity because of the ways that the society in which they live pits them against each other uh you know you've got richard burton who is uh you know portrayed as as the more um the more enlightened the more you know culturally kind of knowledgeable 
uh, member of the expedition, the older one, um, the also the more kind of exciting and roguish and sexy one, and and John Speak as the younger, more noble, you know, kind of nobility class, more respectable, but ultimately dumber of the two who has no real experience and doesn't really know what he's doing and and it's you know kind of about how they how they sort of find friendship and how they feud and and ultimately again i mean i don't want to give anything away even though this movie is 30 years old um but it it doesn't go where i think you would expect it to you know the the film does have a big adventurous quality to it it is a huge chapter of the film but ultimately the last third of the film takes place back in in britain um and i think that's that you know without saying kind of too much more and without spoiling it um that was something that i I was thinking a lot about you know with this film uh with ferrari kind of in this film it's just a film about uh about about men destroying themselves (laughs) Hmm. um and uh and yeah and i i had a really good time with it it's not particularly accessible i had to rent it on amazon but it was like two dollars i consider that accessible there's there are things that are out there that are like are not even available to rent so if i can get something on amazon for three dollars it's not bad yeah and honestly i think you could probably i think amazon has the option for you to just buy it for the same price <laughs> so <laughs> so maybe i don't know some people that, might find that to be amenable but uh as you guys might have heard and others have heard on the podcast before, that was why I bought the Mel Gibson vehicle, The Fat Man, uh, where he played a version of Santa Claus because I told Daniel I would do a podcast on it and it was the same price to buy his rent. So me, who is like the worst at collecting physical media, owns one movie and that movie is a movie about an anti-Semite playing Santa Claus. So uh, yeah, uh, well, this is a little fun fact. Uh, I don't have a lot of movies to recommend myself at the moment just because I just haven't seen anything I like that I haven't already talked about on the podcast or recommend on the podcast. The one TV show I'm currently watching that I haven't talked about that I'm kind of enjoying actually is I'm I'm almost done with the Pete Davidson show, Bubkiss, which I really just kind of avoided because I didn't really hear good things about. But then I saw it pop up on a couple of critics who I respect's top 10 list. And I'm like, it's only eight episodes. They're all like less than a half an hour. I guess I'll check these out. And there's actually some pretty interesting stuff where he's, he's you know, the show is him playing a, a uh, it's, it's like his career enthusiasm, you know, playing a fictionalized version of himself. Um, but like there's different episodes where it's like, oh, here's the one where he gets high when he's shooting a movie, or here's the flashback one where it's like in the wake of losing his dad on 9-11 at a family wedding. Like there are different interesting kind of snapshots of his life. But like I thought, and probably the one I've enjoyed the most so far was like where there's an episode where he's just like finally decides he's about to go to rehab, but he's like talking to all of his friends before he does it. And he has a scene with like John Mulaney where like they actually talk about John Mulaney's real life problems and how like the, the, the public like, you know, had been associating with Pete Davidson because they knew they were friends and they kind of blame Pete Davidson for, for corrupting John Mulaney. And it's like really fun. And I appreciate how John Mulaney was willing to like kind of put himself out there for that show, which is very funny, but like they actually get some serious stuff right in my opinion. So um yeah i would uh easy to check out if you have peacock and uh not a big time commitment and something i actually surprisingly enjoyed even though i'm not necessarily the biggest pete davidson fan i, I can't say like i watch all of his stand-up specials or anything but i've enjoyed the show okay oh and joe pesci plays his grandpa and it's joe pesci like how often he gets, ask. yeah wasn't he it's, uh, yeah he's actually pretty yeah he, he's not in every episode i think and and he's like not like a uh, but he's in, he's in enough of it and he, including one where they take a road trip to florida to yeah, I don't even want to say why the reasons are very funny why they do that, but there's like a, in the same one where his his grandpa is somewhat prominently featured in that one. Also, a crazy Simon Rex cameo. So, uh, you know, just uh, just like uh, he, he, I think deploys the guest stars well, and but like 
props to him for getting Joe Pesci to act because not a lot of people can do that these days. And Joe Pesci is very fun in it. Um, but yeah, uh, before we get out of here, Fred, where can people follow you on Letterboxd? Yep, please do follow me on Letterboxd if you're not already. Uh, that's uh, Frederick0702, or you can just type in Fred Corp. Uh, looking forward to checking out all the Oscar hopefuls over the next few weeks. Still mm -hmm. some catching up to do, but uh, I'm sure I'll get to all of them eventually, and I'll be reviewing them uh, for your enjoyment and pleasure. So please do give me a follow. There you go. Elijah, it's Mr. Smith goes to FL, correct? Yep. Elijah Howard, Mr. Smith goes to Florida, FL. Yeah, as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast Twitter is at RealMoviePod. Podcast email is RealMoviePod at gmail.com. Coming up next on the podcast, I think Elijah will be back uh, with Haley, who has not been with us since she did the podcast on EO to talk about poor things. I'm very excited about that. I believe Elijah will probably also join us for The Iron Claw, a movie which we both really liked. And uh, I think Daniel's going to be back for uh, The Beekeeper and uh, and uh, The Book of Clarence because it's Daniel, you know. So uh, <laughs> very much looking forward to that, I suppose, even if I can't believe I'm going to be driving 20 plus minutes to go see The Beekeeper. But, you know, I'm, I'm dedicated to this thing. So uh, I want to thank Elijah and Fred again for joining me. I want to thank all of you for listening and we'll see you next time.